Welcome to Archonnect Sessions, episode 90. I'm Amelia, and I'm here with my co-hosts Donna and Ken. And this week, we're joined by a special guest and frequent Archonnect sane commentator, Mark Miller. Mark, it's so great to have you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. So this week, we've got a couple big topics on the docket. First among them is Ben Carson's nearly finalized, actually very official, but still not officially official appointment to the position in Trump's administration of Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. This has been something that has kind of been rolling around for quite some time that at first Carson was offered the position, but kind of felt that he wasn't actually fit for it and denied it and then has since come back. And there's been a lot of intrigue there. The second topic we are going to discuss this week has to do with really just the most recent instance of a Patrick Schumacher somewhat public political meltdown. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So we'll get to that. It's a great way to describe it. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you, Donna. We'll get to that shortly. But Mark, first of all, why don't you give our friendly listeners some a little bit of background in case they don't already know much about your professional existence as an architect? Well, I'll, I'll start and work my way backwards. So presently, I'm teaching uh, in the Department of Landscape Architecture at the Pennsylvania State University here in State College. And prior to that, I was teaching in the Department of Landscape Architecture at Cornell University. Uh, most of my work in, with students has dealt with urban design or, or how cities are made, and even just thinking about these social relationships across different scales. Prior to working as a faculty member, I worked in the Twin Cities as an urban designer and campus planner. And before that, I was an architectural lighting designer. And the list goes on from there. But I'm also trained in architecture and landscape architecture along with a degree in fine arts. Yeah, you've been around. You're way more qualified than Ben Carson. <laughs> <laughs> I'm qualified enough to know better. Zing! You haven't, you haven't performed brain surgery as far as I know. but No, I haven't. At least not that I'm willing to admit. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe it would also be helpful in terms of discussing this appointment to HUD, also to work backwards a bit. The reason why this has been a little bit funky to talk about is because as far as we can tell at the time of this recording, um, which is Wednesday, November 30th afternoon, there has been no official statement from the camp of Trump or Ben Carson's camp, Facebook or otherwise, any type of official statement saying that he has formally accepted the position as Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. And so it's been a little bit funky trying to determine not only what he would do in this position now that it seems, as more and more publications are reporting, that it seems like an inevitability that he has more or less completely accepted the position, what that would actually mean given two major details. One, he has never held a federal office, a position in a federal office, and has no experience in government. So whether or not this would be just a sign of incredible outsider political acts or whether it would be a complete disaster is things that people are discussing. And secondly, he's also said previous to a few weeks ago when uh, Trump first mentioned that he might nominate Carson to a a position that he was not fit to do that at all, that he should not do it. (laughs) And now he's drastically flip-flopped on that measure. And so we're kind of a lot of different publications and trying to deal with the implications of what this might mean for housing and a few of the initiatives that kind of that Obama and Julian Castro put together to address the housing issues and especially after the 2008 financial crisis in the U.S., what HUD would actually do. It's really hard to parse what a Carson administration what might actually also do. And that's kind of what we're dealing with today on the podcast. So we knew we wanted to talk about it. We knew that it would be important, but it's also so full of non information or lack of information that it it can get kind of frustrating. So I don't know, did anyone here have a very strong feeling when this was first 
floated as an option around Carson. Sorry, Amelia, can I back up from that question yeah, yeah. and just sort of do a, um, uh, you know, I think that that I don't know a lot about what HUD's mission is or what they do. And I wondered if any of us on this call have any direct experience working with HUD beyond maybe having a federally backed mortgage loan. Mark, do you have you done any work for HUD? I have not. And I try to do a little homework and, and check on it. And they have the most cryptic website. So it's really hard to figure out what's going on and what they're doing. So we all have a sense and image, but there's no real clear identifiable mission, at least that they're stating. Ken, do you have you done any work professionally with HUD at all? No, not at all. So mostly what I know about them is that they have a Marcel Breuer designed building in DC that's beautiful. <laughs> Beyond that. Yeah, they just seem like a huge entity that it's hard to point to directly what they do. The little bit of research I did in the background, it, what seemed most interesting to me was the Bush 2 appointee, Jack Kemp. He was known as sort of a maverick HUD secretary because he didn't always follow the Republican line on a lot of economic development and housing type issues. So he was sort of known as being a little bit independent, but it's hard to point out if any of the other HUD secretaries have really what their major accomplishments have been. And I'm sure that there are people out there who would be you know, yelling at the podcast right now saying, <laughs> how could you not know about these things? But I just, I think the fact that HUD seems like such a, an unknowable organization maybe feeds into a lot of how we would then take the news that Ben Carson might be leading it. Mm. I think that for me, because that also question also uh, arose, it was like, wait a minute, what exactly do I know about the situation to feel threatened that someone like Carson would come into it? Um, because so exactly. little information was known about how he would approach it. Again, dealing with like the non-information information being floating around. And much to my pleasant surprise, there was an article re posted quite recently on MTVnews.com that we posted on Archonnect that kind of goes through all of the things that have happened recently within the Obama administration to, through HUD, kind of strengthen a bunch of housing policies and kind of both towards affordable housing, but also also towards expanding renters' rights in the context of even more renters needing to rent housing um, after the 2008 financial crisis. And kind of putting the department much more in a context of not just providing these kinds of resources, but also with very specific instances in the context of American housing during the last eight years. And that the article basically is makes the point that whatever Carson is going to do, if he's going to do nothing, which he seems very well prepared to do, is nothing, <laughs> that, that that actually would be one of the worst things he could do because so much more needs to be done. And obviously it's a very like, it's it's a highly argumentative piece that kind of lays out everything in a very opinionated way. But it still makes some really important parts about all the stuff that has happened under Obama's administration in terms of getting more public housing in terms of the efforts towards public housing. And so it's kind of a it is kind of a thorny bureaucratic issue where you try to go in and be like, OK, what is actually possible here? Which, of course, turns a lot of people off because it's especially if it's not an agency that like gets a lot of press, which it usually doesn't. <laughs> and in fact, the writer of this article kind of makes a point is like asking the reader, like, do you even know who the current housing and urban development <laughs> secretary is? Like, be honest. <laughs> and, yeah. and I had yeah. to like double check. I was like, yes, I do. But <laughs> and so it's it's stuff like that, that is kind of in a way the silver lining of all these crazy, all this has been happening in the, in the Trump administration recently is it seems to at least be shocking a bunch of people into caring more about stuff. <laughs> 
So with all that said, let's let's ask our guest, um, Mark. Yeah, what did you what, what what is your sense when you first heard? Oh, Ben Carson's going to be the new HUD secretary. Did you have an immediate? I mean, you were we invited you on the podcast, let's say, because you did post on the news article about it, and so we knew you at least were aware and thinking about it. So yeah, what were your whoa, initial whoa, reactions? Whoa. I've been trying to get Mark on for a while. So. Yeah, I guess that's true. Actually, that's true. We have thrown your name around as a as being on. You're right. Uh-oh. I'm sorry, Ken. Uh-oh. I misspoke. <laughs> Ken's one of your biggest fans, as am I. So oh well, thank you. Well, my first reaction, I rolled my eyes. I just, you know, let's just, just like, oh, goodness gracious. And it, the, the, my immediate reaction was, as I, as I posted, was that, you know, he's put in this place as a trope. He's the role model you can point to. Well, if he lived in, in a subsidized housing or something like that, or, or, or lived this, this tough life, of course, he, as a role model, you can model your life after him. And you two can live out in the suburbs or out in some remote countryside and live in a large house like the rest of us. So let the dream live on and we don't have to worry about, you know, <laughs> cities, right? Um, so that was my first reaction. And it's that classic, you know, if you're more like him. And then the other one was that, it, and this is the one that's a little scarier, is that knowing full well that putting him in that position and then him being turned down still sends a message that it's not HUD that's in charge of making cities. It's development, as usual, even more so making cities. Because you have someone or someone else who's not in control or not really concerned with these things, who doesn't necessarily understand notions of public space or, you know, the implications of quality housing, the subtleties of it. In, in a position where they can say, I just, I'll trust you, you'll do what you need to do. And they can bulldoze through the process, completely transforming how we look at cities. So it became this really, you know, there, there are these two scary options about which way this can all play out. Ken? Oh, you know, when I, when I first saw it, I, I, my immediate thought was that he's a brain surgeon, but what does brain surgery have to do with this particular program? I mean, he has his hands in somebody's brain and that's what I want him to be. I want him to have his hands in people's brains because apparently he's he's really good at it. But this is a different kind of entity. And, you know, and when you look at the past of some of these other people that are on our document, I grew less concerned with his non-experience and more concerned with the fact that he doesn't have any government experience. I mean, every other person here from, you know, from Jack Kemp to Julian Castro to Sean Donovan at least had some experience in understanding government and, and working inside a bureaucracy that is complicated. And he is not. And it seems to me that, like Mark was saying, it's kind of this this token that's thrown out there. Like like he said, you know, he grew up in Detroit. He had some question as to how difficult his life was. He, his narrative is a little ill-defined or at least not really fact-checked to to a large degree um, <laughs> based on some of the, the stories he's told. But I, I, I'll take him at his word that his life was tough. I mean, you know, being a black man in this country growing up when he was growing up certainly wasn't a fucking cakewalk. So I can imagine it being that experience is probably resonating. But the problem is, is that... It's like he's made it and, well, you can too, not knowing that cities are harder to live in today. People are being priced out. I mean, it seems that you can't even live in New York City anymore if you don't make a certain amount of money. And if you do, your conditions are way substandard. And then I started to think about, well, look at the chain of people that Trump has been appointing to his cabinet without regard. Every single one of them is probably not just the worst, but the most ill-conceived choice that you can possibly imagine. Almost none of them have any 
real government experience. So when these clusterfuck of an idiots who go around <laughs> saying that, you know, they go around, they go say, they, you know, it's like, this is what I can never understand about the Republicans. Your brakes on your car are broken. So you burn your car to the ground and then go buy a new one. And that's essentially how they look at government. Government is broken. Let's not fix it. Let's burn it to the ground and we'll buy you a new one. You know, there are a lot of things that are broken on a car that we fix daily. And this is like, this is no different. And my biggest concern with him is not just his inaction, but his rejection of the need for fair housing. And to, to the long history that we have in this country, I think what I was doing a little bit of my research today, the Fair Housing Act was one of the mechanisms that ended redlining. And I don't know if it if effectively wiped it out because anything that gets pushed on by government tends to work its way underground in other ways. But it had a long, it was, you know, the passage of that came after Martin Luther King was assassinated. And it did a lot to change who and how people could buy housing and where they could live. So HUD is responsible for that oversight. And if he gets in there and eradicates that, that means, here's what it means. It means that poor rural people won't be able to have access to the kinds of housing that they need because nobody will build for them anymore. It won't be those public-private partnerships. It won't be the kinds of engagement in that way. Gay and lesbian people will be discriminated again. You can see this going down. I mean, it's just the, the end result is so drastically, it's so, it's so horribly horrible to think of. I just can't imagine. I was listening to something today, a, a podcast, Slate does a podcast around Trump, and they were talking about Voting Rights Act and what is going to happen with these people that have been put in place, these little puzzle pieces that have been woven into the, the fabric of the, the incoming administration and how that is going to radically alter the landscape of our country for a long time. And basically what the professor said was it is the end of the second reconstruction, which was the Civil Rights Act. And this will have a really horrible effect. And I think this is just another part of that puzzle. You can get rid of Voting Rights Act. You can get rid of the Fair Housing Act. You can get start tearing away the fabric that knits people at, at the margins of our society together to give them a voice. And you start tearing away and pulling that thread on the sweater. We'll never know where it ends until we have like this ball of nothing. That's that's the interesting part, right? I mean, it's it's... The fact that they are dismantling these things and it's not, it's calculated and it's such a long game that, you know, you can look at any opposing political group, you know, we usually refer to the Democrats, but you could also say the Green Party, whatever. And they're mapping this thing out and looking at, oh, the next four years are going to be terrible. No, it's not the next four years. It's going to be who knows how long, because in the next four years, you're going to have all this deconstruction of all these housing initiatives, and you're going to have a quality of housing change, both in urban environments and in rural environments, which means you're putting different types of pressures on suburbs, and there are going to be these very strange sort of transformations of this middle space that are going to be very bizarre, right? Again, we're going to see this flood to the suburbs, but not for wealth, but because it's a matter of affordability and that's where they can be. So the migration goes from the city into the first tier, the second tier, middle of nowheres. And those are going to be these really exposed places where infrastructure is falling apart, et cetera, et cetera. So it's really scary. 
I was just going to note that, Mark, as you were speaking, I realized that, yeah, the, the previous flight to the suburbs was basically based on people looking for something better. And now we're talking about pushing people out who have no choice. Right. It's not like they're going out there to make their lives better. They're going out there because they have to. And that's terrifying. It's a combination, <laughs> though, right? Because you're going to have these people being pushed out because they can't afford to live there. But then if you think about all these sort of fears and, and concerns, you have all these people who will be disparaged, who don't live in cities who are going to be trying to move into them because that's a center, right? So you can establish some level of density, right? So it's going to make for these very strange spaces or or, or landscapes in between the way we usually look at things. Um, Perhaps it's a completely ridiculous thing to keep trying to find these kind of moments or aspects of silver lining to all of this craziness. But one thing that has come up is just the idea that in this kind of absence of a clear policy directive for someone like Carson, other than these kind of not so promising comments that he has made in the past, such as calling the Fair Housing Act socialist in a disparaging way, (laughs) that if he can be kind of leveraged as some kind of If this opportunity can be taken to then define very clearly from the architectural profession what are some of the most significant things that HUD needs to kind of attack in the next 48 years or however long? What are the kinds of things that as we inch out of the housing crisis and things get a little bit better, hopefully, and can can continue doing so, what are then the major concerns that HUD should attend to? Can you kind of mentioned a few things before in terms of continuing making being active and being vigilant to make sure that the protections afforded by the Fair Housing Act don't get compromised again and that we don't. There is a in this MTV article, there's another reference to a 2015 Supreme Court case that allowed the kinds of ways that HUD discrimination is, is gone after is not through just things that are explicitly discriminatory policy, but like things that could just end up being used that way, which apparently was a big deal <laughs> in actually expanding the kinds of things that could be litigated under HUD. So what are, as architects, like kind of what are those things that, that HUD really should kind of focus on now. Well, here's the strange thing, right? We're, so we're talking about people being forced to move out into the suburbs. Well, we know just through recent studies that the cities are doing very well, that the poorer people are actually living in the suburbs, that, that the, the devastation had a rippling effect. And remember what Donald Trump was doing during the campaign. He was going to revitalize the urban, or I forget his exact language, but it really was like, the oh, the inner cities. That to me is always has, resonates with this kind of white nationalist coded language. It's very genteel in its kind of presentation, but like a 1960s or 70s gentility where he's, you can almost hear him like, you can almost hear that same language talked about in New York City in that way, uh, the inner city. But the fact of the matter is, is that the poorer communities are exurban. They're not inside this, you know, inside Minneapolis. I mean, do we have our problems here? Absolutely. Every city does. You know, what I think HUD should focus on is how to, you know, build affordable housing for the communities that are on the periphery of the cities that desperately need and can't move into the cities. You know, we don't have a lot of transit. And Mark, you were, you were here. I mean, were you here any of the light rail construction? Yes, I was there when they were talking about phase two. Okay. So like the... We have very little infrastructure connecting the outer ring suburbs around here into the cities. We have great bus systems, except if you live in North Minneapolis and it doesn't work so well. But, you know, figuring out a way to actually build an affordable housing and multifamily housing outside of the city is something that needs to be focused on. Well, there are two things. I mean, first, I agree with you, Ken. But the other thing is that, frankly, whoever comes in, needs to make a clear statement and make a stance. 
right? And say, here's the mission statement. Here, here's what, here's where we're headed. Here's the direction we want to take things. And then architects, designers at large can respond to that. Neither it's, that's a, a load of crap and we should take it this way, as we've seen with other mission statements issued by AHEM, the, the AIA, or <laughs> they can jump on the bandwagon and say, okay, here's an opportunity, but at least it gives the community at large a way to respond, right? And understand where things are headed. So I'll, I'll start by saying I have zero hope for anything that's going to happen in the Trump administration, frankly. But if we're looking for clues as to what a Ben Carson Secretary of HUD might be about, I will point out that he, through his Carson Scholars Fund, has funded reading rooms in public schools across the country, especially in poorer neighborhoods or or underserved neighborhoods. He's funded the creation of reading rooms. And I'm familiar with this because I did one. I'm very good friends with a woman who was working as a librarian at a local public school in a ring suburb of the city of Indianapolis. And she got a grant to do this, this Ben Carson reading room. Well, I would point out that the the fact is Ben Carson, the Scholars Fund, didn't just buy books for these libraries. They are specifically funding a room, a place that you go to and read books. I mean, it's they fund the books as well, but it's also very important to them that it's a place you go to. So that might be a tiny twinkling of the idea that Ben Carson does understand that place matters, right? Right? Am I am I reaching? Am I just grasping at fine threads here? <laughs> Donna, I wanna have you float that idea to some representative in the AIA to see whether or not they would have any say. But because we have seen, as Mark mentioned, the the controversy following the initial statement that Robert Ivey made after Trump was elected. And of course, the it would be understandable that the AIA is a bit gun shy about making statements now around a political uh, yeah. appointments. So I'm not I'm holding my breath to hear anything, but I, I'm still interested, right? Like there is, especially if they have the case to kind of lobby for more potential leads towards architectural jobs, then this would definitely be something that would be significant in that in that vein. And so you you do have to wonder, like, what is going on on that level of at the AIA around this kind of appointment and what their own thoughts were? I can't speak to that at all. No. no. <laughs> <laughs> Ken, did you have a comment you wanted to make? <laughs> oh, I have a lot to look. These kinds of picks could have the opposite effect of what Trump is intending. Because actually, I think what he's intending to do or what he has done by naming all of these people who are seemingly really unprepared or have done things so antithetical to what they're, the job that they're holding as a, a case in point for the Secretary of uh, Education, what I think he's done is he's put a lot of people in place that if we think they're going to underperform so well or underperform as poorly as we think they will, it's easy for him to kind of discard them. They're discardable. You know, when you put a strong person in in a position of power, you have a harder time firing that person. But when you put these kind of like these check wielding sycophants who want to <laughs> like uh, kiss the ring, it's easier to to off with their head if they don't perform because you can just say, well, yeah, yeah. But look, I think part of the problem with with Ben Carson is that he's an esteemed surgeon. I mean, yeah, some of his Siamese twin separations didn't go so well. Fine. He's an innovator. He's a, he's a fantastic surgeon. I, I was prepared to come up here and just attack him on his, based on his skills as a surgeon, thinking, you know, well, there's a difference between a brain surgeon and a scientist. I mean, one is actually, you know, it's like, you know, a plumber. You, you got a guy who's fixing the pipes, but you're not, he's not designing the stupid thing. So what could they possibly know? I mean, you know, they wouldn't be the same thing. But I think that if his actions 
don't match his rhetoric that he's been spewing out for the past two years. I think he'll come to it with a seriousness of purpose that he doesn't want to be. Look, he's a successful man. And I think that as long as his actions don't match his rhetoric, I think if he's serious about what he's, if he takes his job and he's serious about it, then perhaps he can dedicate himself to trying to, you know, deal with an incredibly large bureaucracy that has its hands in so many different areas that are so necessary to the vitality of our of, of our cities, of our, our suburbs, of just so many different partnerships that I, I can't, I just can't see anyone just going in to be so blasé about it as to not give a fuck. So I'm hoping, you know, he hasn't expressed the kinds of things that this person who's going to be the secretary of education, who I completely want to see embarrassed on the Senate hearings because <laughs> oh, I totally her, agree. Her, total mission, <laughs> her total mission is to destroy the foundation of our, our democracy, of our representative democracy is education. She wants to give it over to, to hedge fund half wits and just let it go. And I'm like, that right there is worth fighting for. Ben Carson is worth fighting for, but I'm kind of I'm God, I'm holding a I'm holding a small candle that he'll do the right thing. Well, Donna, you brought up the point that he's funding places. And I'd argue that he's not funding places, he's funding spaces, right? It's easy to say you need to throw X number of dollars at a building or at a room in a building to provide this sort of educational infrastructure. But I don't think he's qualified to think at the larger scale. I don't think he can say, all right, what's the implication of a number of these things across a number of streets? What's the implication of the street itself? Or what's the implication of those individuals? And it's that city building thing that really concerns me or, you know, the urbanism. So there's this weird flip side that there's this strange opportunity or dangerous opportunity to create a new urbanism with a capital U, potentially, that deals with the fact that there's going to be a lot of migration out of cities and into the fringe of cities. You're going to get a new mix of people, and the economy built on those sort of new suburbs is going to be very different than what we're familiar with, because they won't be able to go to the the lifestyle center or to the, the, the fancy mall. They'll be stuck in strip malls and big boxes at the best. So the, the economy will change around these spaces. The demographics around these spaces will change. All these things, these mixing pot things that we like to also reminisce about as Americans are going to actually happen again. The downside is with all of that, there's going to be backlash because at some point in time, it's going to go in one direction socially and the, the route we're headed in or we fear we're headed in. And then there'll be a swing back. And that's when you're going to have a lot of violence around these locations. And, you know, if you look at one of the things I, I, I've been looking at for the past year or so are the history of church burnings with African-American churches. And it's not this sort of consistent pattern. It comes at moments when people are looking for civil justice, social justice, economic justice, it's a, it's a swing back. So at some point in time, we're going to hit rock bottom, and then people are going to start to demand rights and freedoms again. And then these places are going to be these hot spots for all these conflicts to occur again. So it's going to be a very, very messy, muddy time. But in the process, there are going to be some very interesting things that might come out of it. Absolutely agree. Well said. I'd be interested in seeing more of that research as you, you know, working on it, but it's going to be unpredictable. You're right. But to a degree, because we also, we've, we've become smart enough or other people become smart enough that they can map these things out, right? We, we as designers serve 
people with a whole lot of data about how places are working. And they, they're working at these incredibly granular levels and they're able to anticipate or predict within a short period of time what could happen and articulate that. And they can make a correction or take advantage of whatever's happening there. So we can start to map these things out and project them as designers instead of waiting for someone to tell us, I've got a project on this piece of property. What can you do for me? We can actually start to map these things out and say, hey, this is what's going on, or this is a potential area, and this is how we should address the matter or experiment, right? Because it's a projective practice. So that then raises the the question of we as designers doing that work, we would not be doing that work, I imagine, under a Trump administration for a government entity. They wouldn't be our client. We wouldn't be doing it for a developer who's, you know, trying to capitalize on the high dollar (laughs) No, no. The downtown condos. It's a very different practice. It's a different practice. We're doing it for ourselves. We're doing it on the behalf of communities. We're doing it on behalf of the communities that we might see in the future and articulating it that way. So until we can get absolute 100% confirmation that Ben Carson is indeed the secretary of HUD, we will hope to continue the conversation uh, around what the kind of implications are and and what kind of the next step is and architects role in it. But for now on the podcast, we're going to move forward to our next topic for this week, which is now also in the vein of the messy intersection of architecture and politics, where we have (laughs) uh, Patrick Schumacher making a statement at the World Architecture Festival in Berlin that since he made it had to be directly addressed by an open letter from the firms, Ahadid Architects, denouncing what Patrick had to say. Um, and I'm going to not read directly from a quote by Patrick, but instead refer to Ali Rainwright's write-up for The Guardian about Patrick's comments, which he very succinctly refers to in, in the headline for his piece in The Guardian as Patrick calling for the um, architecture to scrap art schools, privatize cities, and bin social housing. So obviously that is an extreme generalization from what actually went down at the World Architecture Festival, but uh, points to a lot of the things that Schumacher has said in the past surrounding encouraging of neoliberal policies for architecture and basically unleashing architecture fully into the market, often at the expense of people who might not be very moneyed or well off otherwise. So obviously these statements were very controversial and fell, as they often do from when they come out of Patrick Schumacher's mouth, on very angry ears. (laughs) He has a pretty good track record of not backing down from saying very controversial things and then continually engaging with them over various means of social media or writing op-eds or such. But this time was pretty was special because it actually also resulted in his own firm releasing a public statement saying, we do not agree with what Patrick Schumacher is saying here. That is not Zaha Hadid's legacy. We recognize that he can say those things and still be a valued part of our firm, but not be representing our firm's interests in those statements. So when did you guys first become aware of this and kind of what was your first response to the latest installation of this uh, Patrick says something wacky and everyone gets really angry? I'll be honest, my first awareness of the most recent one was when I read Alexandra Lang's tweet that her policy is just to never click on Patrick Schumacher stories. And I thought, hey, that's a great policy. I'm going to follow that. But then, of course, I couldn't resist. You know, you can't really ignore it, right? Well, no, I I think, Donna, I don't think you're alone at all. I think I saw that same tweet and Christopher Hawthorne either retweeted it or or liked it or or made some indication that he also agrees in that policy. And I and I totally get that kind of fatigue. And it's the same fatigue that people are expressing around the crazy things that Trump is tweeting about. There's a lot of parallels and kind of how when someone in a certain position of power says enough crazy things that you get really the, the attempt to not in today's word, normalize it by also by covering it in a way that is 
righteously outraged as much as it should be, but still actually covering it responsibly and in metered scale with everything else going on is extremely difficult and often doesn't show up the same way on everyone's feed as you would like it to. Some some people think of it as just, oh, another Patrick Schumacher article. That's like basically clickbait. Like they're just kind of trying to capitalize on that controversy that is overall a small thing to try to guide traffic. And I get that kind of cynicism and it's frustrating when you do have a very public architect who now leads like one of the most significant architecture firms of the current day who says things like we should make housing, we should pave over most of Hyde Park and just like put housing in there, but only allow rich people to live in it, like things like that, where you you kind of have to decide whether you're going to wage through the whole garbage fire or just like, yeah, run out into the wilderness and cut yourself off from any information at all. <laughs> well, so and I will just say my, my one sort of real comment I want to make is that w- what I found exciting or cool about this was that, you know, Patrick made these statements at a panel discussion a couple of weeks ago, and the mayor of London spoke out basically against what Patrick was saying, disavowing it, saying this is not good policy and it's not the way that London will be. And I just thought to myself, God, when was the last time an architect said something and a mayor of a world city, let alone, you know, Indianapolis, actually had a commentary on it? Like someone's listening to Patrick, so that's good. But if what he's saying is is so problematic, maybe it's not so good. But yeah, I would, I just love the fact that the mayor actually had a comment. Mark, what did you think? It's marketing. He's not talking at us. He's not talking to the design field at large. He's talking to people who have capital who want to do exactly this thing, right? So basically he's saying, I'm on board and I will, I will ride this bus with you, so to speak. Contact me. Yeah. Right? And, you know, there's a level of the thing I don't know or I'm not certain about is what the level of cynicism versus sincerity is is embedded in this statement. Because he has said made comments before in other podcasts, something to the effect of, we will design culture and we will make these civic spaces for those who are, I don't have the precise words, but those, those people who are educated and informed, and then the rest of the people can look from afar at those things, right? So we will have our nice things and you can look. And the thing that I'm really concerned and curious about is how much he really believes those things or how much of it is that he's just trying to get as much money in his projects as possible by finding people who say, yes, we agree with you. And that's the sinister point where it also sounds very Trumpian, right? Which is just like the ultimate pragmatist who will say whatever needs to happen to get whatever they want and or to get whatever business ends they want to be completed. And I mean, we've obviously worked with Schumacher before and we've published opinion pieces by him. And I think it's it's a really interesting difficulty to struggle with for architects when we do have this person making these very audacious comments where the mayor does feel the need to respond. And I'm struggling to think of another architect who has been able to at least engage on that level of public discourse. And I'm not saying that that allows him to say whatever he wants or that it, it means that whatever he does say is true. But it is in kind of a twisted way. It made me think, okay, if this is something that does get the mayor's attention and the mayor feels the need to respond, this is an architect who is playing the part of a not necessarily like a public intellectual, perhaps, but a, a public figure more so than I can really think of many other. I, I can't really think of, a, of another architect at such a level who is also involved in such a powerful firm who has made such statements to actually provoke this kind of response. And again, it doesn't justify the actual things he's saying is true or good or anything, but that it does kind of call out this idea of if we want architects to be part of a public discourse, he's doing that. And when I think of like 
the U.S., I don't know, I think of Gary. Exactly. And of Gary saying 90% of the stuff that's out there is crap. Right, right. Right? Putting, <laughs> that's, when, that's when he gets in the news. Exactly. <laughs> and at a, at a press conference and, you know, it's just, it's very, it's, it's very, it's frustrating when the attention comes, but the attention that is being paid is uh, not so good. <laughs> but it's about him. It's about his firm. It's about revenue. It's not necessarily about the discipline at large, right? Yeah. Well, that's, I, I think that's also like, as pointed out by Ollie Wainwright in his write up, there's a huge amount of precedent to these statements that Schumacher is making that I am, for one, not qualified to fully comment on because A, because there just is so much of it and they're published in gigantic cinderblock tomes that I haven't read, but that we also have seen Schumacher trying to live out in his other efforts to form a libertarian state, in his other practices that have in their own way been very separate from his practice at at Zaha Hadid Architects. And that is also complicated by the fact that they were, a lot of them were happening before she had passed away and before he had become the major player at the firm. So I know in in the comments section on the Arcanic post, there was this floated kind of controversial idea that Patrick himself then wrote the letter that Zaha Hadid Architects issued denouncing what Patrick said, just to kind of, to Mark's point, bring up this other idea that, yeah, it's all to serve the firm or it's all to serve attention. It's all to serve marketing. It's all in that evil pragmatist kind of role. And I'm not necessarily like, I, I'm sympathetic to have you in a way. I'm like, because I kind of like to entertain it. I have obviously no grounds for saying that it's true or not. But we do know that the statement was, well, we don't know who wrote the statement. We do know that it was vetted by the board of directors at ZHA and Patrick is on that. So we have reason to think that he knew what it said and was fine with it going out anyway, which is as it should be. But it does kind of interestingly complicate everything. Well, you know, I mean, I think I either when we interviewed him or the week prior, because we didn't get to Zaha's death right away. But I've been curious about his role uh, because at the firm now, because he wasn't doing what Zaha did. Zaha is the is the personality. She was the 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 face of the firm. It's it's ZHA. It's not PSA. So the fact of the matter is he really can't speak for anyone but himself. And whether or not their work I I, I never got the sense that he was capable of being the front person for that firm. I mean, his voice is too academic. He doesn't have the personality. Look, he's German. He's a robot. I mean look, <laughs> No, honestly, when, when we tried to, you know, when we were on, the sh- when we had him on the show, one of the things I was trying to get was a sense that there was a human being there who had a sense of empathy or could connect with, give us a sense of Zaha outside of, you know, I mean, he had, that was his opportunity to kind of show, you know, demonstrate that he had a, a really strong uh, connection to her beyond the work, beyond what he did and beyond his uh, service to her. And it never came across. He never had a, gave us, gave me a sense that anytime that he was human and that, you know, you ask him a human, very human question about how he was going to, you know, move the firm forward, you know, and he would veer off into parametricism. And that was his answer to the, you know, a basic human condition, you know, what was she like? I mean, what was her personality like beyond? And then he would ramble on about stuff everybody else on the planet knows about her. I, I've been trying to, you know, sometimes I get ahead of steam and he starts posting stuff and it comes up on my feed and I started trolling him when he posted something last uh, about a week ago, a week and a half ago. Just to kind of, cause it was just like, you know, I was irritated. I'm like, you know, enough with your privatization bullshit. I mean, but what really drove this spike home for me this week and seeing this, and even if the slap down was, was brilliant, was the fact that, you know, the man has 
zero sense of timing. <laughs> I mean, either he has great impeccable timing or zero sense of timing. Because, I mean, this country, Great Britain is going through it. I mean, this kind of deleveraging from the public good is maybe he saw it as like, a oh, he could, he could you know, get this groundswell going and get more people like, you know, maybe he wouldn't have to live in Lieberland. I mean, maybe he could live somewhere where he can live out his libertarian or anarcho-capitalist fantasies. I don't know. But the one thing that's the, the the kind of high mindedness of the of the slapdown was a you know it was over the top in some ways because I'm like look Zaha wasn't building homes for the homeless let's stop with that fucking bullshit I mean she was building stadiums she was doing all that that firm was doing a lot they weren't in you know what we consider you know the public good they were in it to create spectacles for large for wealthy countries and for you know for the grand display of athletic abilities and other you know so it wasn't really you know it was a little weird in that the slapdown but at the same time I appreciate it. If there's anything I like more is watching a German get slapped. <laughs> Ken. Harsh words, Ken. Harsh words. I know. I know. But we got enough over here right now. But in his defense, and I can't believe I'm saying that, oh. he did show some remorse or some loss when he was interviewed after Zaha passed away. I would, yeah, I would agree. Some of the stuff he said... The, the, his tone was was very sensitive, and it was interesting the way he described the relationship. It seemed like he was as connected as he could be with her, as as connected as anyone else could be with her. It just happened to be she was that busy or that out and about. So I think there is a level of sympathy. It's just who he sympathizes with outside of the office or what the agenda behind that is. It's really a question. No, I, I agree. I agree with you, Mark. I mean, that was the other thought that I had when after the after we did the interview is that, you know, not being able to share a real human moment really spoke to how maybe perhaps guarded Zaha was in kind of sharing those kinds of, you know, what I really wanted to hear was that, you know what, she loved football. She loved <laughs> sitting down watching like Chelsea play <laughs> Liverpool and she liked to toss back a pint, you know, something not I mean, not that moment, literally, but that kind of like, wow. Wow. You know, because you're always looking, you see these figures, you go to their lectures and they're kind of these bigger than life things. And, you know, the one thing that I always look to and it might, my favorite interview that we've done on our connect is always, it will always be the Todd Williams and Billy Chen interview. And because when they said a few things, I, and like, you know, they were talking, they didn't have really consider their legacy or they don't really archive their material. It was just these striking, you know, that they're, and then getting them to, you know, think about their legacy and think about their history and, and that their legacy is in their people. It was, you know, that's something that you don't get architects talking about. And, you know, we know Zaha's work. We know what Patrick has to say about, you know, what he's interested in and about parametricism and everything. But I, you know, I really felt like, wow, you know, I would have been nice to just say, you know what? Wow, she's she did X, Y and Z. And I don't know, in the grand scheme of things, maybe it didn't. Didn't matter, but it was just something I was looking for. But that was the point when he said that the workflow was a situation where she would pass on a drawing, if I remember correctly, it was basically a section or something like that, this sort of image of a project. And she would pass it on to someone and they would develop it, right? And that's a level of trust and intimacy and familiarity that happens in an office that we'll never understand because, well... Unless someone comes on who, who, who works in the office, we won't understand that relationship. But that's a very intimate moment. 
right? To be that person who gets that drawing from Zaha, who says, develop this. Now, then the question then becomes, how does he interface when that drawing was passed off? Where was he in that whole exchange, or did he insert himself in after the fact? And those are those interesting dynamics and the subtleties that you don't always hear about or see. But I think those moments were there in the office. It's just now the dynamics changing drastically. And Ken, I'm totally with you that I too was guilty of wanting some kind of big, like, just like one of the gals kind of reveal where, oh, and she, you know, loves this kind, she loves to have a Manhattan every, you know, week, you know, something, (laughs) something like that. But then again, like as much as this podcast and our attempts to not only learn more about what it was just like working at the firm, but also an attempt to get closer to these architects and understand not only what makes them tick, but who they are as as people. We do still have to remember that when they, I mean, I don't want to presume anything, but when they're coming on the show, they still know they have to kind of represent some kind of public representation of their firm. And so not to equate it exactly with the comment from before, this is marketing, but they have to still push an image. And whether that image is one of humanity and publicness and and fairies and rainbows, or whether it's one of, you know, the perfect libertarian state <laughs> is kind of like, it's it's kind of an apples or oranges deal. I don't know. I, that's like my super cynical thought. And I don't mean to close out the show on that. But does anyone else have some closing thoughts on on Schumacher's statement before we kind of wrap things up? I'll take that as a no. (laughs) (laughs) All right. You know, I've been more interested in seeing where the firm is going to go and seeing if they they can sustain it, because this is this is a pretty big deal. And, you know, the one thing that the clients, the clients they deal with, they don't like instability. And if they sense there's a inability to kind of work together in that office, it'll start affecting people. And they're they're not going to look at them the same way if they know that Patrick can't like hold it all together and be the face of that firm. He's going to continue to kind of be out there politically. He's going to offend people. And sooner or later, people are just going to get tired of it. I don't care how much money you got. You still got to build that shit in some city. And, you know, he's going to run up against the wrong person. Well, we will we'll keep an eye on it. And of course, I am always professionally obligated to click on whatever Patrick Schumacher <laughs> thing comes out. So I, I, don't have, I don't have any scruples around that. But Mark, if you should so like, I think we should ask you Ken's eternal question to kind of round off the show. Ken, would you like to do the honors? Yes. Mark, what are you listening to and uh, what are you reading? Oh, what am I listening to? I don't have much on my my phone. I have The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the original audio. (laughs) That's excellent. The the audio show. on. That's the only thing I have that's on there steadily, right? Then beyond that, every once in a while, I will listen to Terry Riley uh, just on loop. Uh, What is it? A uh, rainbow over a curved sky or on a curved sky. Those are the two things I basically listen to all the time. Well, then I've got a few podcasts that I'm listening to that Arconnect sessions. And then I've been listening to a podcast for colored nerds, which is fairly interesting. And Under Night White Sky just picked up. Right now, gosh, what am I reading? I'm being highly geeky right now. And I've been reading three articles. I've been reading an article by Tim Morton, How I Learned to Stop Wearing and Love the Term Anthropocene. And then a counter to that by, or not a counter direct, but a article by, uh, sociologist by the name of Jason Moore, I believe he's a sociologist, called The Rise of Cheap Nature, which is about the Capitalocene as a counter to the Anthropocene. And then Jane Bennett. I've been reading an essay about that she wrote about the ecology of matter. So, you know, very, very 
dull stuff, but that's what I'm looking at. No, it sounds actually really interesting. That's a good book yeah, list. Yeah, that's, that's a great concert of stuff. I think what I have to start doing is I have to start asking people, what is your Spotify playlist? Because if you can make it public, we can let everybody listen to what you're listening to. <laughs> yeah, for, for better or worse. Because <laughs> we've been getting that a lot lately. Oh, my Spotify playlist is this. Yeah, exactly. Like the priority or the preference lists. Well, we will include these in our show notes, including links to specific tracks for people to stream. And Mark, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. It's great to have you. We hope to have you back on soon. Yeah. That is our show for this week. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, we are at Arc Sessions on Twitter. And you can always also send us an email at connect at arcconnect.com. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider rating us on iTunes. You can also find us on Google Play Music. Until next week. Thanks again, everybody. Great to talk to you all. Thanks a lot. Bye. 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 Bye.